This is episode 118 of Relate on giving people a map to get lost with Jim Calder. We are spending more and more time in the online world, looking through our screens and increasingly disconnected with those around us. But studies have proven that it's real-life meaningful relationships that bring us the most joy and happiness. It's all about human connection and conversing with people from a variety of backgrounds. Worlds change when eyes meet. So let's sit down and relate. I am your host, Patrick McAndrew, and welcome to another episode of Relate. We have a great episode for you today because we are talking about Really, this one aspect of me, which is acting. In this episode, we are covering a lot of topics when it comes to acting, but my hope is that for you non-actors out there who are tuning into this episode, you're also going to take a lot of great lessons from this that I hope you could implement into your own life. So if you think this episode will resonate with someone, please send it their way or head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. I would really appreciate it. In this episode, we talk to Jim Calder, who's the head of movement at the NYU Tisch School of the Arts in the graduate acting program. Jim talks with us about the importance of honoring your sense of play, why it's important for actors to be tremendously attentive, and why our habits as actors are extremely dangerous. He also talks about this concept of giving people a map to get lost, which I'm very excited for all of you to learn more about. Jim also discusses the difference between experiencing and explaining when performing on stage. We talk about the importance of interrupting your own habits as well as exploring the unexplorable. There's a lot to unpack in this episode, and I'm very excited to share it with you all. Now, a little bit more about Jim. Jim Calder is the head of movement at New York University Tisch Graduate Acting Department. He is the winner of the David Payne Carter Excellence in Teaching Award and artistic director of La Piatra Summer Theater Festival in Florence, Italy. Jim has directed at various locations in New York City, including the Lincoln Center Institute, Pearl Theater, Classic Stage Company, The Public, New York Theater Workshop, and here. Jim was movement and creative consultant for the upcoming film Silent Retreat, on Pericles at Berkeley Rep, Passion Play by Sarah Rule, and has served as movement director on Broadway for Therese Rakin, starring... Kira Knightley. Jim has performed at the Old Globe, PS122, and throughout Europe. He was the lead actor and creative consultant in PBS's Naughty and Friends, and Jim trained and performed under the direction of Jacques Lecoq in numerous TV specials in France. So we have an amazing episode with an amazing guy coming up for all of you today. If you have a friend who is interested in acting, or maybe even a friend who's just looking for a deeper sense of awareness of themselves, this is the episode 
for them. So please share it with your friends. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and let me know your thoughts on this episode. So with all of that said, let me please introduce our guest, Jim Calder. show because not only just given your experience in your career in theater and you know being head of movement at NYU right now but just given you know where I'm coming from with my perspective this podcast is all about the importance of creating meaningful relationships specifically in today's digital age where I think a lot of times many of us could be very detached from ourselves, very detached from our bodies and in the online world, very in our screens all the time. And I think we offer a, I think we offer a very unique perspective as actors, directors, theater practitioners uh, when it comes to, okay, how can we put our devices aside and really connect with other people and really develop a deep understanding of who they are. And so, so yeah, so I'm really excited to, to have you on the show, but I'm wondering if you can maybe just start off by uh, sharing with both myself and our listeners a little bit about yourself and really what led you on the path that you're, you're now pursuing today. I, what did I do? Um, I, you know, it's, uh, I think I always like Susan Sontag's quote, taste is a matter of a thousand distastes. What usually happens in life is you invest in something, then you go, oh, I don't really like this. <laughs> <laughs> and you do that enough. I mean, you have good experiences and things, you know, you wouldn't trade them. But you know how people always go, yeah, that was horrible, but I wouldn't trade it for anything, uh, you know, like relationships and experiences. So right. what led me to this? I, I guess what I'm interested in is, is honestly, most of life is sort of uh, this giant improvisation. And then we tell ourselves a story that we wanted to do this or wanted to do that. And I know that sounds overly philosophical, but really, I mean, I grew up in Northern Minnesota and just, you know, running around doing nothing but goofing around. And I got into college and then I went into like this outward bound type thing where I was teaching winter camping at 40 below in Minnesota and rock climbing. Oh my gosh. What was that like? <laughs> uh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine camping well, in that weather. It was arduous. Let's leave it at that. It was hard. It was really hard. You had to, you know, you had to just, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it took forever. I never have done it again, but it was fascinating. The actual, actually, the rock climbing was, was, I always refer to that because, you know, actors always go, well, I, I want to be in the moment. But you know, when you're on a rock, a sheer rock cliff, <laughs> and there's a rope tied around you so you know that you're safe, but you're scared shitless. Yeah. And you're looking for something to grab onto. And I always talk about this with actors because basically, um, you know, you're just, you're hanging on. And you're looking for something. And then suddenly uh, your, your, your knees start to shake <laughs> because you've been there too long. Yeah. And you see something and you go, that's not big enough. That's not a big enough handhold. And then you keep looking and pretty soon you're frantic and you go, that tiny, tiny handhold or foothold that I went past before has to hold me. 
and it usually does. And so intent and desire and, and willfulness are usually what drives us. And so I basically teach sex and faith, desire and belief. But sex and faith is, you know, sexier. But, you know, you know, faith is something that you just don't, you don't question. You just go for it. We never say, you know, I'll, I'll have faith in it when I see it. You say, I'll believe it when I see it. Right. So right. you play until something clicks. That's about yeah. all, really. <laughs> well, yeah, and that actually led me nicely to my next question. We have a lot of non-actors who also tune into the show. And, you know, with you being head of movement at uh, NYU uh, to School for the Arts, for as an actor myself, that, uh, you know, that clicks right away, like what that could be. But for those actors or those non-actors who are listening into the show, I'm wondering if you could even further elaborate on what, what exactly does a head of movement do? You know, uh, I don't know. Movement is sort of a strange term. It's a term, term that basically all schools then went, well, let's do voice movement and acting. Um, but the best teaching is something that actually incorporates all of that because really movement at its best is really just experiential in other words what do you experience not what you think necessarily it's your ability to simply have a larger experience so um i mean let me let me back up a little bit you want to honor your sense of play. And that's a big word because really it's not necessarily play as in everything is good. Play is really a sense of believing in both the positive and negative things that can happen. Um, and so I know, I know it always ends up sounding, sounding kind of philosophical, but really you want to train yourself to be available for anything. And that means understanding your text but then using that text as a foundation to play within the text. And I think what happens is people go into movement thinking, oh, I should move here or I should do a gesture. But when that goes through your logical brain, it comes off as just a learned movement and an explanation. So really, I mean, even for the non-actor, it's just allow yourself to experience more. There's a lot of games, there's a lot of situations you can do to have that happen for you. I mean, I end up teaching a lot of people that, like I'll have a, <laughs> I'll have a class and there will be someone who's done a ton of TV and a ton of work and then someone who's never before done anything. The games are the same. They're, they're difficult. They're basically impossible, but then you try <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And, and then, you know, um, yeah, play for more than you can afford to lose and you'll learn the game. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's just a matter of attacking something and not ever giving up. And that's something that basically everyone can learn. The professional actor ends up actually doing that so much that they can incorporate that into a text and do two things at the same time. That's, I think, the big difference. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I really love what, you, what you're talking about, about 
Really, it really is a matter of opening ourselves up and really having a heightened awareness as to what's around us and be willing to maybe not necessarily accept everything, but be able to acknowledge those things that are around us, whether as an actor or whether walking throughout our everyday life, whether it's people who are, who are different from us or maybe experiences that we're very uncomfortable with, and, you know, stepping outside our comfort zone, things along those lines. I think that, especially with what you teach with movement, I think it's a skill set that not only actors can benefit from. Yeah, I, basically what you said, attentiveness. If, you, if you're tremendously attentive, you can just teach yourself how to act. It's going to take a long time. And you'll be behind everybody else who pays a lot of money to go to big institutions. <laughs> but uh, um, it's certainly possible. I mean, the older actors, you know, I've heard everyone speak from uh, Whoopi Goldberg to Sam Shepard to Ian McClellan to Patrick Stewart. Uh, Patrick Stewart and Ian McClellan said the same thing. They just learned by watching people. They were in these small companies in, in England. Um, and they just uh, had this phenomenal way of being attentive. James Earl Jones said the same thing. He said he just, he didn't speak for eight years of his life. He, a, he had a speech impediment. And someone asked him what he did, and he said, I listened. So your ability to hear and your ability to listen deeper and see what most people just glance over and accept is a great part of acting. And I think that goes along with uh, people who are, are both experienced in acting and the inexperienced actor. Right. And in addition, because I, I would agree with you, I think that listening is such a an important concept uh, or important skill set rather in both acting and <laughs> I think just in, in conversational skills as well. Why do you believe that it's also important though for actors to communicate with their bodies? I would phrase it differently. I would say you need to experience a deeper desire, want, fear, you know, love, hate, all of those things. So they're, they're accessible to you. Here's what happens. Here's what happens inside a human brain. I got this from Daniel Kahneman, who is really one of the best behavioral scientists ever. Uh, and he said, when a human is faced with a very, very difficult problem, they will inherently solve an easier problem. However, the difficulty is subconsciously, they will not know that they have not solved the big problem. And that's a huge thought. In other words, as an actor, okay, believe in this, believe uh, um, uh, Romeo would die for you. What people do is they explain that. They go, oh, I believe that, yes. Or they say, as you said, yes, listening is important. I'll listen to you. What happens is, and you can see this in a game because basically movement is just a larger sense of experience. You, you don't just learn gestures. When something is terribly important to you, you find new ways of communicating. <laughs> and every human is the same in that. What happens is we go, we listen, yeah? Okay, we'll listen to something. But let's say the stakes are higher than you're used to. You will solve it with an easier problem. You'll go back to your habits. And your habits 
as an actor are extremely dangerous because whether you love Romeo or, or you know, want to, <laughs> want to kill someone, you'll go to your same habit. And then you'll start to look alike. And you go, wait a minute, aren't those two different situations? You as a human, perhaps, you would act differently in those actual situations. So an actor is going to, well, let's play with the possibility of believing in this a little bit more and then see what, what voice comes out of me, to see what gestures come out of me, to see what movement happens. Really, the largest moments in your life uh, when you're awestruck, what's the gesture of awestruck? When I think of awestruck, I think of really wide eyes. Yeah, no, you're right. You're totally right. But nothing else. You don't move. Yeah. When something is so large, whenever you've seen an accident happen in front of you, you stop. And what you do is your eyes get big because you need to desperately take in information in order to survive. It's a physiological reality. And so what you want to do is train yourself to either see that in other people and then also allow yourself to experience moments that are larger than you know what to do with. So I know this sounds complex, but really it's rather simple. <laughs> Basically what I'm doing is I'm giving people a map to get lost. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, what's so and awesome. you yeah. need to be able to, well, you need to be able to be lost even though you know your text really well. Mark Rylance has this beautiful statement. He says, it always has to be new. People don't want yesterday's lunch. <laughs> he's like, he's extremely well known for being just so attentive to what is exactly happening with an audience. He doesn't necessarily go away with, from the text that much. He doesn't improvise Shakespeare. And so a lot of it is just developing that confidence that you have more choices available to you than you actually think. You're, you're, you can go farther than your first or second habitual choice. So really, all I'm doing is playing games in a way that can increase your palate of belief, of, of choices. And then along the way, movement and voice opens up. I don't know, does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Well, I, th I think you, you, you bring up a really important point that I think, I think at the end of the day, it's a matter of having a very strong foundation of whether it be uh, technique or, or uh, all these implements that are required for acting, but having this strong foundation so then you are, you are able to explore and improvise and experiment with all of these different choices that you're talking about. Yeah, that's a freedom that comes from enormous discipline. And, and knowing that, that you, you can get lost. I mean, <laughs> it's my favorite quote is Daniel Boone. He said, I've never been lost. Although once I was confused for three days. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's just wandering around until something makes sense and you get 
to do that with a text. You learn it, you understand it, and then it's not that you forget the text, but you need to explore what different experiences are happening to you. Shakespeare is great because they change on every couple of lines. And you have to, you, it, it's, a, it's an action, it's an action uh, series of actions that you want to play, and choices and details. And, and you have to be very, very astute and then be open to what your surroundings are and, and you know your 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 acting partner changes something an audience will automatically know if if you have not responded in in kind to that so a lot of it is training yourself to to explore as you say yeah yeah, and it, it's always this ongoing process. I know, you know, with myself personally, just that the exploration never ends. You're always, always finding something new to experiment with. Do you think that when, when teaching movement or, or teaching a lot of what you were just talking about, do you think that a lot of actors struggle either like in the, the beginning stages, like getting over this hurdle of, being like, oh, I can be free to make choices? Or do you think that the struggles happen later on when they are exploring all over the place and they have so many choices and they love this freedom, but then they have a hard time trying to hone it down and focus it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you're right about that. I, I think it happens in different ways. Often actors are really good in the beginning because they don't give a shit. And they just go into it and they find that there's a freedom of choice. And then they go to school. And then you go, oh my God, there's rules. Um, but again, the, the rules, the text, the words are not the experience. You have to be able to then go through that and go, oh, I need to be playful. I need to have an interesting time here. Or I need to be so scared that I don't know what's going on, but still know exactly what my text is and, and be attentive to that scene partner. It really is like juggling. You, you, know, <laughs> uh, you know how they always say, don't bring you know, babies and animals on stage. Uh, the fast day, I was watching birds this morning because we're all home. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so I just watched birds. I put bird seed out pretty close to me, like a huge varied distance. And it's fascinating because the reason animals are so amazing is every microsecond of their life, they are judging between danger and desire. And you can see that in animals. So the bird will hop a little bit closer. Why? There's, there's food. But I'm sitting right close by. And so they do not take their eyes off of me as they try to eat. And it's this dynamic that that is actually this sort of yin and yang or this opposite, you know, danger and desire. Where those two things meet is fascinating in animals and in people. And it's why you don't bring animals on stage, because they're so good at that. And why humans are so bad at it when they act. <laughs> they don't realize <laughs> I need to reinvest in what I want through these words and what, I'm, what I can lose. Basically, I, I, I'm teaching people to be very, very available to losing. I think Jeffrey Rush said that. I, we went to the same school, Jacques Lecoq, back in the 70s. 
And he said he learned at that school, he learned how to lose. And that always stayed with him. So uh, it's not just what you want, it's what you, you fear to lose as well. And, and, and why that's, would, that's a tricky one to stay with. And why would you say it's so important for us to learn how to lose? Because stakes, when stakes increase, what does that mean? Yeah, more is on the line. Yeah. Yeah, your life could change in a blink of an eye. I mean, you're, you're 100 feet from a rocky shore and you're hanging out of nothing on a sheer cliff. You're really looking for something to hold you because the actual reality is extremely dangerous. How do you redo that? You need to invest in, in both what you can gain and what you can lose. They are always, they're at that struggle. The more you can gain, the more you can lose. I mean, you know, it's the stock market. <laughs> or it's love. Like if you're, if you're madly in love with someone, you're fearful of losing them. More so than just a colleague, right? Yeah. Nobody loves someone unconditionally, unless it's a child. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that when you desire something, you automatically can lose something. Now, if I desire a drink of water, my stakes are extremely low. But if there's two glasses of water and one is poison and one will cure me, that's a fascinating thing for an audience to watch. But yeah, it goes back to what you were saying before about the the danger versus desire in animals and and how really that's what what motivates them at all at all times and for for some reason i guess humans i i guess we think in that way but maybe not as a as much of a heightened level except in those moments like what you're saying and when you're rock climbing and one step could you know lead to tragedy yeah it's 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 amazing to kind of put those goggles on and look at it from that perspective. Well, if you think about it, um, every moment of your life, you want something and there's something that bad that can happen, really. There's not a moment that that doesn't happen. The thing about acting and the thing about theater is, it's like, <laughs> I worked with Zelda Fitchhandler for, 20 years. She always said, well, theater is just life with the boring parts taken out. So if you, if you increase those stakes and those situations, much like, a, a, like really good authors, anyone from Shakespeare to August Wilson to uh, Sam Shepard, there are stakes. How do you play stakes? You can't play the stakes. Yeah. But you do have to be attentive and try to find the experiences of losing and winning and have those move in you. Really, I, I, to teach movement without that is just to teach a bunch of moves, is to choreograph. Whereas really what you want to do is understand humans and how they actually work. We're fearful and we're desirous. What happens when it's huge desire and huge fear like you can lose a tremendous amount. Yeah. I don't know. It's like you, could, you can look for that in every text. 
And then you have to play both at the same time. And I think that's the practice that is very, very difficult. But that's what you're saying. That's what those experiments should be. Experiment with both of those things. What happens is because we're monolithic, we like to, we like, come on, we want to come up with an answer, don't we? Oh yeah, of course. What happens when you have an explanation is your mind releases endorphins. And so you like explanations. However, the problem is in theater, you don't want to explain, you want to experience. And oh, this, this is great. <laughs> okay, explanation and experience. Experience, if you, if you go into the Latin, ex is out of. Experience, peri is peril, danger. So experience is out of danger. Huh. Whereas explanation is out of what? What's plain? It's to flatten. Explanation is to flatten experience. So as an actor, you need to be so, so aware when you fall into explaining. You've gotten rid of the juice, the life, the desire, the sex, the faith, the everything that is exciting in life. And then you've reduced it to an explanation, which is why we buy books about acting. They explain how to do it. And then we feel good. Our endorphins are released. Oh, good. I got a book. I'll just do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so how how do you believe that that actors could could experiment more and and veer away from go because I, I i would agree with you i think that sometimes i and i know i'm guilty of this myself too is that sometimes when we're acting we have the tendency to fall into an explanation as opposed to really experiencing something in that moment how how can actors focus more on the experimenting as opposed to the explanation? Okay, you know, Declan Donnellan wrote this good book, The Actor and the Target, Target, uh, The Actor and the Target, um, and it's, it's a phenomenal book. Uh, uh, he says, don't use the word focus, <laughs> <laughs> because focus gives you only one side, whereas attentiveness, the word attentive is kind of, well, wait a minute, that could change, and they could change at any moment. So your question is, how do you get to that? Really, focusing, we tend to bore in, and that's an individual, that's that monolithic sort of way of looking at life. Whereas attentiveness is, I need to move forward, I need to be front-footed about this, but I need to be attentive to what's around me. And then, uh, uh, you know, really, a lot of it is just experience, allowing yourself to go through text and saying, well, what is character experiencing? And then uh, to go, well, I think it's closest to this when I was really, really sad about my grandmother. And then you, you know, you try to have some emotional access to other parts of you. The difficulty is... Uh, you need to also then extrapolate. You can't just stay in one spot. Um, then you'll, you know, because after a while, <laughs> your, your grandmother will not feed you or that, or that bad memory or that wonderful memory becomes another habit, like a memory of, of how to do things, which is not living. I mean, I don't know if I'm explaining it very well, but I think a lot of it is really, it's just being attentive to when you're experiencing and when you are explaining.
you have to, in other words, if you're attentive to it, um, I think this is where classes and working with other people helps you. We are very bad at being critical with ourselves. That's another Daniel Kahneman. <laughs> the guy that wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He says we're horrible at critiquing ourselves because we are so good at making up a story for why we're doing what we're doing. So that is an actual fact about your human brain. So how you get around that, and he did say that the only thing he does believe in is that groups can, do, can learn how to be more critical. And critical is really an, an essential part. It's not judgmental, it's just critical. And for, so, I mean, I was working with, uh, I was working with a woman in New Zealand <laughs> yesterday on the Winter's Tale, uh, Hermione's speech. And really most of that work is just going, no, I'm gonna stop you there because now you're just explaining. I can hear it. And she goes, yeah, I knew I was doing that. And then I asked, well, why didn't you stop? So part of this is being able to interrupt your own habits. Because sometimes you just want to barge forward. No, Pat, you've done that. We've all yeah. done that. We're in a bad situation. We just go, if I could just get through it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get out the other side and, you know, <laughs> yeah, I hear you there. Whereas admitting, you know, that sense of loss and losing is good. You can go, well, you know, I can barge through this. I mean, these are... I remember Patrick Stewart saying once he lost his voice, or was Ian McClellan? Sorry, Ian McClellan. Ian McClellan. And he lost his voice and, he, and <laughs> on stage. And he said, well, I just, I told the audience to wait and I laid down. <laughs> he just laid down for four or five minutes. He felt his voice get come back and he got up and went on with the piece. I mean, I think it was an astounding moment. So, Again, it, winning and losing are not winning and losing. They're experiences. How do you do that? It helps to have other people there because you'll fool yourself inevitably. <laughs> you'll, tell, you'll tell yourself a story that seems to be logical and seems to be good, <laughs> but is not terribly accurate. So, uh, you know, it, in a way it's a mystery, but in a way it's just you keep going back to that map of how to get lost. And you have to know when you know too much about, I know exactly where I'm going. Because no character in a, in a play says words that they know are going to come out. They just come out from the experience of that moment. So movement, again, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a misnomer. I, I mean, because I translate it to mean, let's try to increase people's experience of life. In a, in a game, in a playful situation where you're supported, you're not berated, we're not here to make you feel bad or judge you, but we're being very critical about when you're not actually doing what you say you're doing. Because that's, you know, when, you're, when you play a game, um, you can't talk your way out of it. If you're playing soccer and you miss the ball, <laughs> you whiff and end up on your ass. <laughs> There's no way you can explain that okay. You cannot lie to yourself yeah. because everybody saw it. <laughs> so I try to find those games that are basically just impossible. And you cannot 
find your way out. You can't solve an easier problem. Like I do this, Devin maybe has told you this. I do this, this I invented this game called the trash can. Whereas you're madly in love with this trash can. Like you are more in love, in lust, and desirous of this trash can than anything in the world. Because really, in a classroom, you experiment with how much love, lust, desire can a human being have? Doesn't that, that seems interesting to me. No? Right. What's right. the maximum? What's the maximum you've ever seen? Well, let's experiment. I mean, it's inanimate, but your desire has to be so overwhelming. The only fly in the ointment is that if you touch it, you'll die. <laughs> so a group watching that exercise can tell exactly when a person's just explaining or trying to seduce someone. But that's not love, lust, and desire. That's just you wanting someone else to like you. Yeah. Um, or they'll start looking like the, uh, the beginnings of that, that Spike Lee film, she's gotta have it, when you're just saying this monologue because you wanna impress somebody, <laughs> some lover. Um, uh, so those things are, are just such wonderful teachable moments because they're impossible. But again, you have to, you have to risk getting closer to wanting to touch it and then not. What hmm. people will do is just say, well, I don't want to touch it. No, no, that's solving an easier problem. You don't have that choice. The given situation is this is the maximum amount of love. So really, it's about getting rid of those narratives that we tell ourselves that's why games are great yeah I, i'm sure i'm sure with that specific game it's a very entertaining day in class <laughs> oh it is so fun because it drives people crazy um and then you go well, okay that is your your palette of experiences you can sometimes do gestures and if you had enough experience and you and you can access that experience you will have the actual emotion. I mean, you can like, <laughs> there's this guy named Maura Casey, an Italian dude who wrote a book about melodrama and his whole acting theory was, listen, put yourself, put your face in a grimace and you'll suddenly feel exactly like that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's a horrible acting book. But what he discovered you know, back in 1910 was that is actually true. And then, and then neurologically people then in, in you know, 2015, 2018 go, yeah, that's true. These, the, all these muscles in your face are connected to your brain and your memory. So you can do this either or, but what I'm trying to do is go, well, let's try to explore the unexplorable in what humans want and what they fear. And then along the way, if it's impossible, you will uncover your habits. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It really is amazing thinking about it as this exploratory process. And yeah, I, I think too, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. How, how do you believe that movement can allow us to learn more about ourselves or our relationship to our bodies and even, even like our relationship to other people as well? What you said in the beginning, be attentive, be more aware. Let's play a game, but now let's watch what that person does. You, and you, what you do is you begin to learn the psychology of, of a physical body. What, what do they do? 
what do you see in that person that they keep repeating? Because that's a sign that they're just trying to control. And often uh, there's a phrase in acting like front-footed. Mark Davy, the chair of, of grad acting, always uses that phrase. It's like, how can you be forward? Because when you watch a person and they're being defensive, they will invariably be a tiny bit on their back feet. And the more you watch people, the more you can see that defensive move. You have to be kind of astute, but start looking. Like, look at people. Um, the next time you're out and about, watch, watch lovers. <laughs> watch a relationship. Watch those people in public who are having an argument. You'll see the front-footedness and you'll see the back-footedness and it'll change. And, and if they're standing, you'll literally see people recede and you'll see people go forward. And you just teach yourself, oh, wow, that's interesting. It's, you know, it's not a judgment. It's just a sense of being aware of what movement can connotate. It's, it's like language. It, it can teach you a great deal about what's happening to that person. Uh, and then you get to sort of figure out the, the intentionality of movement. It's not movement per se. It's what movement tells you that's important. Uh, because we have this thing that we can learn movement. You can't. You can't learn it. You just do it. <laughs> you do it instinctively. <laughs> you know, how you laugh <laughs> is your own specific way of laughing. Uh, it, it, you didn't learn that, did you, Pat? <laughs> no, no, I didn't take any classes on laughing, at least not yet. <laughs> I mean, you can teach people to move, but intentionality and experience are more interesting words to try to tackle, to, to go after, because they're dualistic. They're, they're being attentive. They're, they're being attentive to, to what you want and what you fear, what you can gain and what you can lose at every instant. And you will notice this in really interesting actors, that they're, that they're on edge. We always do these, you know, come on, these, these catchphrases in acting. What have you heard in acting in scene study classes? Uh, give me the phrases you always hear in scene study classes. I always hear, uh, what's your objective? What's your tactics for yeah. accomplishing that objective? Yeah, those are, and, and those are good. They're great starting places. But if you name your objective, what has happened is your brain has told you you've solved the problem. That makes sense. Yeah. And then the acting teacher goes, what are, what are your tactics? And then what do you say? Give me an example. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so action verbs like I, I want to seduce or I want to yeah. uh, persuade. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to seduce. I, I, I caress you with this, with this text. Um, I think those are great. And I think they're wonderful. But what I'm interested in is how far can you want something? Because otherwise, what happens with all of those actioning, uh, those things are marvelous because what they do is they get you to change your habits. You can't just do the same thing. And that's where I think that what you want to play with is those actioning verbs also need to unleash something in you that is exploratory, a larger experience. 
Otherwise, what your brain does is your brain goes, oh, okay, that's my tactic. Now I'll do that. Well, two performances later, you look really boring. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I, I think you make up, uh, you, you bring up a really good point is that while those, those things are important to have in mind to an extent, you're right that in some ways it, it has the potential to take out that exploratory nature that is so important with acting. Yeah, there, there are things to work on. They're excellent. Actioning is an excellent thing because it does get you to change. But also being attentive to your scene partner can get you to change as well. It, it, is, it is that sense of, um, I'm going to add my, my action, but I have to be aware of what my scene partner is doing. And the, listen, the interesting thing about Zoom and everything else is, is uh, often your scene partner, well, listen, if you're gonna do film and television, uh, my actor friends often, they say, well, listen, 50% of the time, the other person's not there, it's just a camera. <laughs> so what do you do about that? I mean, I, I was working with this wonderful actress named Emma and and I said afterward, after we worked on this play, it was a, some Greek play, Iliad, Odyssey, something like that. And she had this scene. And um, it was just wonderful because she was able to imagine, because it was a scene with no, that no one was there, literally, because it was a god that she couldn't see. And usually people will not be able to imagine that deeply. Come on, how many times, how many times have you, all actors have done this, you go, yeah, well, my scene partner didn't give me anything. That's why my scene was bad. <laughs> uh, it's a, such a common phrase by actors, for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the other thing is, well, why not just imagine that they gave you? And so if you go back to actioning, you could action what they actually gave you and have that be more specific and more detailed. So, I mean, the whole Michael Chekhov stuff is just fascinating because really he was just an interesting person. He was willing to imagine. And that quality, I think in today's, especially in Zoom and so much television and so much is happening, it's really important to, to, to take away that excuse, well, I wasn't being given anything. <laughs> okay, fine. Does that mean you never want to be in front of the camera? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Again, you're solving an easier problem. All of those things are the same. Well, Jim, thank thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show today. Not not only with uh, taking the time to come on the show, but uh, I, I also just really appreciate your take on acting, your uh, really your ideas behind movement and how it's embedded into our acting as well. And then also like just how that serves greater humanity too. Like I, th I think that the, a lot of what you were talking about, while yes, it's specific to acting, I think could be, I, I, I think that non-actors who are listening to this episode will really be able to learn some things and implement some things into their own lives as well, especially when it comes to the attentiveness. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, yeah, it's, it's you know, there didn't used to be theater schools. They didn't exist. It's a modern thing. And it speeds things up. Um, but, you know, the old actors used to have to just observe. You know, the poets and the writers had great observational skills. They knew what was going on around them. So, 
you know, it's certainly possible to do on your own. <laughs> In today's world, there just, you know, there tends to be a lot of classes. The problem with today's world is it really has become a, a class-oriented, and I mean that in both terms of class, uh, it's become something that everybody who's gone through a school has a leg up, so you have to go to school and spend money. Uh, you can learn it all on your own. It just takes longer. And, and there's not as many of those regional companies or the small companies that, that, that everyone used to learn in. It used to, everything used to be an apprenticeship. And the apprenticeship model is extremely good. It's just in today's world, it takes longer. It's yeah. an odd conundrum. Anyway, Where? I can talk forever about how people I know, this, learn. I feel like I keep, keep chatting with you. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the, the great work that you're doing? Is it just on the NYU website or is there another place that's, that's better to check out? Oh, I don't know. I tend to try to hide a little bit. I mean, there's, yeah, if you go onto the NYU, the graduate acting website, um, I probably have some, you know, probably the same quotes from 10 years ago. I look a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's about it. Um, uh, I'm working on someone on a, with someone on a, um, uh, a documentary, uh, because I'm just, I guess, because I, what I'm saying to you is I'm enormously curious about how humans act and I'm continually learning more. Um, and I, I'm fortunate. I get to learn by imitating life in a classroom. So I'm very grateful to all the students I've seen. I don't know where they can look up. I, I just, listen, I just, I sort of have been cloistered at, at the graduate acting at NYU for, for about three decades. Um, yeah. Great. Well, I'll make sure to at least include that link for, for people who may but just be interested in learning more about uh, you and your work and what you've done and what, what you're currently up to. So I'll be sure to include that for our listeners. Uh, and I, I do have one last question for you, Jim. How do you believe that we as a society can better relate to one another? Better relate? What do you mean? I think- What's relate uh, mean? Yeah, I, I, I understand it. I mean, and obviously this is always evolving too. And a big reason for this podcast is exploring what exactly relate means. But for, for me, I, I see it as finding a common humanity in our fellow people, finding ways in which we're embracing our differences, but also finding ways in which we're all similar too. I think, uh, again, uh, I think I would say one of the things that happens, remember I said, when you're faced with a difficult problem, you'll solve an easier problem. The easiest way to solve problems between humans is to judge them. In other words, it takes less brain power to judge something than it does to stay attentive, to stay curious and go, Oh, let me know more about that. And so part of, I mean, I listen, I get a lot of, I get a lot of how to act from this, from, from, I just read Daniel Kahneman and I just went, wait a minute. He's talking about how your brain works. Your brain goes to judgment because it's easier. 
And so in a physiological, evolutionarily, you know, forward way, to use less brain power is actually good for the species. However, it's terrible to try to understand another person. So if you could find out where you stop judging and stay attentive to what the conversation is and keep moving through that and keep the curiosity, um, you end up learning. I, d does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it's, I mean, it, it, it's simple and it's complex. It's, you, you are designed to judge. Your brain is. It's not a moral issue. We, we confuse it often. We go, oh, that's morally bad. Yes, it is. We, as a culture, we can figure out what we believe in is morally bad and ethically horrible. However, it's important to understand how your brain actually works. It is designed to make judgments, snap judgments, because that can save your life. That's why when you're walking along a path in the woods and you see a stick, you think it's a snake. Because mm. one time out of a thousand, it'll save your life. So your brain has been organized in that. However, our brain is on judgmental steroids right now. So we just judge yeah. like, like so quickly because we get so much information. There's no way to be attentive to every bit of information we have. So the great danger of this information is that we indeed start to judge everything. And that's why we end up in these corners, in these little echo chambers. Uh, it's just too much brain power to try to understand. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's <laughs> concerned with judgment and curiosity. And those two things are constantly playing back and forth. Um, and if you can find a way to understand, oh, wait a minute, I'm judging that. Let me just be attentive to what the conversation actually is. You can judge it later, and you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I love what you're saying, too, about how uh, it, it takes a lot more brain power to try to understand, and uh, whereas it takes less to judge. And that's probably why it, a lot of us sometimes do do default to, to judging first because it's, I guess, more natural in a lot of ways, but I guess could more likely cause moral issues in our society while also maybe potentially yeah. saving us from danger at the same time. So yeah, it's just this interesting uh, conundrum of sorts, but, uh, but yeah, that'll be, that'll be great to, to leave our listeners with. It'll give them a lot to ponder as, as this episode, as this episode concludes, which is great. So, so yeah, yeah, Jim, that, like, All right. that, that, thank you so much again. I, I, I really appreciate it. And when I was talking to Devin, uh, she was like, Oh my gosh. Cause I, I told her that I was chatting with you today. And she was like, oh my gosh, you're going to be so excited to chat with him. And, and you, you have not, you have not disappointed. <laughs> and well, it's, I, I have been blessed with having amazing people to work with and amazing situations. Devin's one of those people. So yeah. I've learned a lot from that. Uh, so Jim, thank you so much again. And we'll be sure to be in touch Thanks, soon. Thanks, Pat. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Toodles. <laughs> See ya. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relate. You can let me know your thoughts on this episode by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a review. Or if you have the Anchor app, 
feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.